I mean, I remember when we showed Seth Rogen um, Johnny Darko <laughs> for the first time. I believe this was Seth's first movie. If you remember, he plays one of the bullies. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember he kind of the lights went up or the credits were rolling, and I remember him walking out of the theater and was like, "It's the most complicated movie ever," you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what he said. Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined as always by the voice of CinemaSins, Jeremy Scott. Hello. And from music video Sins, Barrett Share. Hi. And today we have a very special guest. It is writer-director Richard Kelly, um, who uh, is uh, where there's a there's a special edition Blu-ray release of Southland Tales coming out on January 26th. Uh, It's uh, it's got the uh, theatrical version and the can cut uh, containing 15 minutes of restored footage. Richard Kelly, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for uh, for uh, talking with us, and uh, we definitely want to get into Southland Tales and everything. Just but uh, briefly, let's talk a little bit of Donnie Darko. That's I think that's still uh, what a lot of people know you from and everything. And um, the you made this movie when what when you were like twenty four, twenty five. I was actually I was twenty three years old when I wrote the script. I think I sold it to get it financed when I was 24. And then right as we went into production, I think I was probably just turning 25 when we went into production summer of 2000. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> year 2000. Um, yeah. Um, was your head spinning during this whole time? I know that 25 years old, I, I, I don't know what I would uh, have done uh, with commanding this big of a cast on my first movie. You know, it was a combination of um, being really prepared because I had been to film school for whatever that's worth to some people. It was worth a lot to me. I went to USC and I had a degree and um, I felt that I was ready to do the job to direct a feature film. You know, I'd done some sports and I had done all my research and I had a great crew and I had all these amazing people around me. So I felt really prepared for a 25 year old but you're still terrified. And if you're not <laughs> terrified, then I think there's something wrong. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you should be really, really intimidated by uh, the opportunity of directing a feature film, no matter what age you are, because it's, in my opinion, it's the best job in the world. It's the most ex- exciting opportunity for an artist. If you want to go down that path and you can achieve it, I recommend it for everyone. But you should also be scared. You should be really terrified. So there was plenty of fear and I just, I just showed up every day as prepared as I could be. And you have to take it one day at a time. Directing a movie is literally a one day at a time endeavor because you've got 12 hours you know, you can't go into overtime. If you do, you're getting into trouble, you know, so you've got to just plan out your day and make your day. So um, it was a, uh, it was a huge opportunity and I tried to meet up to the challenge as best I could. 
just having recently uh, watched it again, uh, I was just, I was just particularly affected by that ending again. Um, uh, mm. the ending of that movie, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I had nearly cried before watching it. I did this time for some reason. Um, and I think it's just because, you know, you, you recognize the sacrifice that, uh, Donnie's making at the end of that movie. And, and then those, just those, uh, the images of Maggie Gyllenhaal and Holmes Osborne especially tears me apart when I see it. Um, and, uh, and then Mary McDonald trying to put on a brave face and everything, and then just sort of the simple waving, uh, that goes on before the credits roll. Um, uh, so how do you, how did you, how did you corral that cast for that movie? Well, that was, um, that was part of what was so terrifying about directing your first movie at age 25 is when you're surrounded by that many actors, many of whom, you know, I watched growing up just pretty much every actor in that cast I was very familiar with and had this incredible um, respect and admiration for all of them. And so it was just trying to surrender myself to the raw emotion of the material and listen to them when they had a suggestion and kind of form a collaborative relationship with all of them. And I've done that with every actor I've worked with. I try to look at it as kind of a, a teacher student um, relationship, but it's really not clear who's the teacher and who's the student. You know, you, kind of, <laughs> you know, both wear the the hat and depending on the conversation that you're having. And there would be so many times when the actors would teach me something or I would give them like a little project to go home with and come back with, you know, a backstory or, or, an idea for a scene. And so it's just this sort of collaboration and it's ongoing, you know, it, it, it really is a, uh, a really intimate relationship that I think the director should have with the actors in a way where there's a really clear line of communication. And if they're uncomfortable with a line of dialogue or the staging of something, they should be able to speak up. And so I tried to just have a really open line of communication with all of them. And I think by the end of the first week, I had the crew believing in me because you got one week to either win or lose the crew. And then with mm -hmm. the actors, you know, it usually takes a little longer. And if you've got an ensemble coming in and out, as we did on this, you know, you've got, you know, different actors coming in and sort of diving into the madness and, um, <laughs> but by the end I felt like I had gained everyone's trust and everyone felt like I had done a good job. And it's not always that they understand the whole big picture when I'm doing these movies, because all of my movies are these really ambitious uh, metaphysical puzzles and they've got mm -hmm. big science fiction ideas and um, big complicated uh, plots that are often difficult to decipher. And um as you discussed with the ending of this film in all my films, there, there's a, a tragic ending uh, where the protagonist usually does not survive. Uh, mm. So it's, um, it's not an easy uh, sort of puzzle to decipher, but if the actors have a, a, an emotional understanding of their own character, that's really all that matters because it's not their job to understand everything that's going on in my head. 
and I wouldn't want, <laughs> I wouldn't want them to because they probably run <laughs> screaming and never speak to me again. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, you know, as long as they again, as long as they understand their emotional arc, then I think I've done my job. And if they show up at the premiere and they see it all put together and they're like, oh, OK, I'm trying to get what you were trying to do. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I remember when we showed Seth Rogen um, Darko for the first time. Uh, it was at a screening. I think it was just before Sundance. Um, we kind of did a cast and crew screening and everything. And I believe this was Seth's first movie. If you remember, he plays one of the bullies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ricky Danforth, who's one of the, the cruel uh, bullies in the, in the school. <laughs> I remember he kind of the lights went up or the credits were rolling. And I remember him walking out of the theater and was like, it's the most complicated movie ever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, felt the same way at that point. Yeah. You, uh, how close, you know, since it's such a collaborative relationship, how close do you get with your uh, your actors? Obviously, you've worked with just these the ridiculous talent in uh, both of those first two features. Uh, if you see a Gyllenhaal walking down the street or something like you, you guys dap up or like give the elbow thing or like you guys still kind of recognize each other and stay in touch or anything like that. Yeah. I've kept in touch with uh, a lot of the actors from, um, the movies. You know, I wish I could, I wish I could be in constant communication with all of them because it feels like, um, they're, they're part of when you're a director and you make movies like I do, it's a really personal kind of filmmaking. So you feel like, mm. again, it's sort of like a student and a teacher relationship. And I want to clarify very often I'm the student, you know, so, mm. but it's mm. like the way that you remember your favorite teachers from high school um, or your favorite classmates, you know, if Hollywood is high school, you know, then mm. you never forget those people. And, um, Maybe life is like high school. Maybe we it's like no exit. Um, it's our turn. It's high school, you know. Um, we, we're still stuck there. Uh, we're all learning and we're all, you know, suffering. But um, I don't know. It's a really personal experience you have. And sometimes you only spend a few days with someone or it's like a few months, you know, if they're the lead actor. But I don't know. Those are times that are etched into my memory and they're in my uh, – cpu database in my brain forever i i remember virtually every shooting day from every movie i remember oh, wow like the chronology <laughs> i remember the beginning middle and end of each day i remember every little thing that happened and it's like when you're shooting a movie like those day those days like they burn so much brighter than normal days <laughs> just sitting on the couch and looking at Twitter all day or something. I mean, there's <laughs> entire months of my life that I've just deleted from my brain, you know, um, they're just mm. gone. They, they're meaningless. But again, every day um, on set is like a really special day. And, um, you know, there's like all this extra adrenaline flowing through your body. And, you know, it's, it's a really, for me, being on a movie set is like this sacred time. So the time spent with the actors is sacred. So any chance I get to to ever reunite with them or speak to them is is always going to be um, a blessing to me. Awesome. I wanted to ask you real quick. Uh, I'm a big proponent of people who are willing to kill their main characters. Um, yeah. um, 
But I'm curious, since you mentioned that it is sort of a theme with your films to have a tragic ending, usually involving the protagonist, I'm curious what your reasoning is as a storyteller, uh, why that is a consistent thing that you come back to. <laughs> well, um, I don't necessarily recommend it to other uh, storytellers <laughs> because when you do that, when you kill off uh, your beloved protagonist, um, and if they are beloved, that means you've done your job well. But then the test audience gets really angry with you. <laughs> they become really angry if you uh, get them to fall in love with this character and then the character dies at the end. Mm. Um, now, if the death is earned and it's a sacrificial death, then... Uh, makes sense for the story and the story earns it. Um, and I feel, I hope I've done that on my first three films, but it doesn't mean that the audience is necessarily going to be happy. Um, so you take that risk where if you're, the ending of your movie is a downer uh, and it's also a confusing downer, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> the audience isn't quite sure why the lead character had to die or, whether it was necessary or whether it's um, yeah, some kind of sadistic cruelty on on, be, on behalf of the filmmaker uh, for inflicting that fate upon the lead character, you're you're taking a risk that um, I don't necessarily recommend to everyone. You know, and it's not something that you know all the films that I hope to make and I've been working on, and all the stories that I've been working on making in the future. And all the writing I've been doing, I, I'm not necessarily someone who's obsessed with uh, this sort of martyred death of the protagonist. It's not uh, it's not like something that's going to happen every time. But <laughs> for these stories, it just felt like that was like a, there was a, a theme of sacrifice and there was an ambiguity to the to the death of the protagonist. Um, and uh, kind of like this sort of sym the symmetry with the protagonist being. Um, killed with a, a metal art, metal object, a large metal object, you know, a bullet of some kind that, that takes a different form. And it's not necessarily a bullet. It can be a jet engine or a rocket mm. launcher. Uh, or in the case of the box, it's actually a bullet, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it was a sort of a theme that I was working through in the first three films. And, um, mm. but again, Boy, to the test audiences, they don't like those. They don't like those. <laughs> they make it I, easy. I have I have been baffled by the jet engine for twenty years, man. Uh, the the <laughs> the uh, the explanation I've come up with in my head is weird space continuum shit. Is that sort of is that? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if I'm anywhere near right on this. <laughs> Well, I think you just des described like the Big Bang and the formation of the universe, didn't you? There you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> we, can up, we can chalk up our entire existence on this planet as to weird space-time continuum shit, right? Maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, uh, it's a it's a really worthy uh, question because the engine, the jet engine, and the circumstances of of uh, Donnie's uh, death at the end of the film are obviously they bear scrutiny and analysis and not all of the answers are presented in the text of the film. Um, mm -hmm. And there is a, a logic and a, and a science fiction 
uh, apparatus that I, I do believe that, and that I understand and that I think um, I could probably elaborate much further and there's a lot more uh, discussion and um, narrative uh, ex- exploration there. But mm-hmm. you know, without kind of like getting into too much about it, it, there's definitely a lot more there and there's a reason and there's a, a design behind all of it. But there just mm-hmm. wasn't really room in the in the two hours and change you know text of uh, of Donnie Darko to really get into all of that. Um, right. You know, there's there's the the tangent universe, or there's the 28 day time frame that occurs. You know, the first 90 some percent of the film, which is you know one could argue is might be a dream or some kind of communal dream that's experienced by a lot of people. But you know, there's that. Uh, tangent universe world that sort of exists and the events of it, but then there's everything that, uh, that you don't see, you know, uh, the analysis of the events after the credits roll, you know, so there's a lot more there and it's just like, sometimes there's just not enough uh, real estate in a, in a feature Mm -hmm. film to explore all the ideas. And uh, you just try to get everything, you try to get enough there to leave the audience satisfied, but perhaps wanting more and wanting to, to continue to, to process things. Yeah. Uh, you came out with, uh, I believe the director's cut came out, uh, 10, 11 years ago, somewhere around there. Uh, is, is that, is that, uh, uh, is that the movie you would make today or do you think you would do more to it if you were to make that Donnie Darko today? Well, um, the, the director's cut, I intentionally kind of probably overstuffed it with more information that was part of the uh, the philosophy of time travel, you know, the book that you see in the film written by Roberta Sparrow. Um, mm-hmm. I, had, I had completed some partial elements of what's inside of that book. And I had sort of completed and written those elements while we were in post-production editing the film. Uh, and I, I knew there wasn't going to be room for it in the, in the text of the theatrical cut of the movie, because it was going to be too long. And it was, you know, it was a lot of uh, kind of encyclopedia, kind of text information. So I, that stuff ended up on the website for the film. And when they came to me for a director's cut, I figured, I figured I would try to do like an extended version of the film that it was never meant to replace the theatrical cut. It was just meant to be sort of a, an an extended sort of alternate version for people who really wanted to dig into this sort of science fiction mythology of what's in the time travel book. And it was meant to sort of set up the much bigger universe, you know, of Donnie Darko and, and potentially, you know, a lot more narrative that could be explored uh, in, in greater detail. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of probably not, I'm really not satisfied with either version of the film. You know, if, if mm-hmm. I were able to, if I were able to kind of create a, a third version of it, I would, it would probably be a split somewhere between the two existing versions and there would be more uh, visual effects work that I would want to do, um, particularly towards the end of the movie, you know, that I could never afford to do, that we never had the budget to do. But, uh, you know, again, these things are never really finished. They're sort of abandoned. And um, so, you know, I think that there's just a lot of ideas there and it was always meant to be a science fiction film and every little thing that you see in every scene is there for a reason. You know, there's some stuff in the movie that 
some people have never even picked up one and what it means, or they've never really figured out what it could mean. So it's hmm. been exciting for me to just sort of process it and analyze it and think about it, you know, over the past two decades and, um, you know, come, it makes more sense to me now probably than it ever has, which, mm. is, which is good because, you know, maybe that's like a, a step forward in terms of uh, growth, personal growth or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you, you want to, it'd be nice to have every, all the resources the first time out, you know, and, um, that's not to say I wasn't enormously blessed with a lot of resources, um, you know, 20 years ago when we directed this movie, you know, it was the summer of 2000 and we were able to raise four and a half million dollars to make the movie. Wow. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for any, anyone, but for, you know, for someone at that age, for your first film, it was in a, it was a, a large amount of money, but at the mm. same time, you know, some of the stuff we were trying to achieve, visual effects and even practical effects wise it's just we we couldn't get completely to the finish line you know it wasn't quite enough mm. but you know i'm proud of what we were able to, to do with that amount you know i guess if you adjust for inflation four and a half million in the year 2000 uh, what's that about six and change or something now you know so um you know movies cost money that's the thing it's like you know, <laughs> They really, you know, even if you shoot a movie on an iPhone um, and you're you're not lighting anything, you know, you're doing it really. Uh, and people do that now; they do more than you think. Uh, it, it still costs money, um, and it should cost money, I think, to look like a film and not just, uh, you know, like something that's thrown together. I think there's a real, a real um, a need for a proper schedule and a proper art department and a lighting package and all of those things. And, um, you know, yeah, I think a common misconception for film fans is, you know, they don't think about how much work a director has to do. You mentioned earlier, you know, you have like a week for the crew to come on board with you or not. And, you know, I think a lot of people just think of the director as, you know, the guy telling, people where to stand and where the camera goes, but there's like a whole circus going on and like it all, the buck stops with you. Right. And I've always been in awe of anybody that can do that job. And sometimes people joke about whether I would ever want to make a movie. And I'm like, no, I would be terrible at that. I just, <laughs> I don't think I could do that. It's not, it's way more complicated and way more about relationships than I think people realize. Yeah, and you have to surround yourself with a really, really tight group of people that you trust. You need to have time to develop a relationship with them. You got to communicate to them exactly what you want, you know. And you have to really direct your crew just the way you direct your actors. And you sort of, you know, you give your actors an emotional uh, roadmap for how to navigate their character you have to do the same thing with your cinematographer, your costume designer, your production designer. Mm -hmm. Everyone who's in your department, they have to know exactly what you want. They should know exactly what you want, provided that you actually do know what you want. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's just really making sure that uh, they have a, a really clear roadmap. And if all that work is is accomplished in post-production, sorry, in pre-production, then you 
are able to spend the time with the actors and you're not running around on set freaking out because you don't know what you want and where you want to put the camera or you haven't decided what color you want that wall to be or this actress's scarf, you know, you got to pick something, you know, it's, it should all be figured out ahead of time so that, you know, when the actors are, are in their makeup and ready to go, that you're giving them all of your attention and the crew has it all mapped out and it's all ready. So hmm. it's, uh, it's just a, a lot of communication. It's a lot of decision-making. I mean, you have to make a thousand decisions every single day. And that's in addition to the, the thousand decisions you've already ma- had to make in pre-production. So uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to, uh, to digest. And it's not for everybody. But to me, it's the best job in the world. So awesome. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Is there a uh, is there a twentieth anniversary Donnie Darko anything in the works? Well, uh, well, <laughs> there's a lot of work we've been doing on on Donnie Darko in 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 a lot of ways. So uh, I don't know exactly what is in store for the twentieth anniversary. I think we're I think we're just trying to get through tomorrow afternoon. Um, let's see. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Aren't we all, Richard? <laughs> what, what happens tomorrow afternoon? It's now one thirty-three p.m. Eastern. Yeah. No idea. No <laughs> idea. January nineteenth, two thousand twenty-one. <laughs> Thank you for marking the date, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, if this podcast so, doesn't survive through tomorrow, through noon tomorrow, if if uh, will it? Can it be put in a, in a cloud somewhere for aliens to download? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. That's that's the first thing I'm going to do. <laughs> that's the first thing we put it in the alien cloud, and then you know, just for safekeeping. Um, uh, Southland Tales came out in 2006. Uh, so you have a, a Blu-ray that now has the can cut of Southland Tales, which is a two hour and 40 minutes. What's, what's sort of the difference between the can cut and the theatrical cut? Well, I want to give the caveat to the audience that um, the can cut of Southland Tales is a work in progress, unfinished mm. version of the film. It is Basically, if you got in a time machine and flew back to 2006 and went to the French Riviera and went to the Cannes Festival and snuck into the theater, this is what you would have seen in 2006. And so it's we've done a 4K polish of what 
existed, but what you're seeing in the can version is um, it's has a lot of unfinished visual effects in it. Uh, the, the edit is a little rough in places in my, in my opinion. And um, it, it was um, a version of the film that it has a lot of extended scenes and a lot of deleted scenes that you, that you might not uh, have ever seen before. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. a more kind of, more complete uh, version of the film, but it is not finished in any way, shape or form. So I just want to put that sort of caveat out there. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm very excited for people to see it because it, it just gives you a new approach on the film in terms of, of the bigger picture and Mm -hmm. look at it alongside the theatrical cut. Again, neither version in my mind is finished. Um, you know, we have some more visual effects work that we put together for the theatrical cut. And there's some more, some more kind of news media elements and some more graphics and some more stuff that expands into the, the graphic novel prequels and stuff and gives a little more of a impression of what the bigger story is. But it's, it's, you know, two versions of the film that are still work in progress in my mind. And, uh, and I, I, I hate, continuing to, to talk about my films as work in progress because uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's frustrating because uh, it's usually just because of restrictions on either running time or budget, you know, or visual effects budget or the sort of distribution apparatus just isn't uh, prepared or ready to kind of support this kind of thing. So um, the can version is very much, I'm excited for people to see it, but just to know, don't expect polished visual effects or, you know, um, it, there's still a lot of work in my mind that we hope to do with Southland Tales. So it's for me kind of like, um, uh, presenting a historical, uh, curiosity in what the can cut is. And, but then also, uh, hopefully this entire Blu-ray release release can be kind of like a catalyst for something, uh, really exciting to happen down the road. Awesome. Yeah. Is it, uh, do you, do you see this movie being like a four hour type of thing at some point, like, uh, that you wanted to add more to it? Yeah. Well, we, we published three graphic novels. So when you watch the existing version of Southland Tales, the two versions, you'll see it begins with chapter four and it's mm-hmm. divided you know, into chapter four, five, and six. So we published, uh, graphic novels for the first three chapters. So the the big total story of Southland Tales is six chapters and kind of in my mind, if we were able to really do the big uh, grandiose version of it that I would hope to be able to do, it would be all six chapters. And I think I would divide it into two films probably. Mm-hmm. Um, it would probably be like two, three hour films. You know, they could exist uh, side by side on like a streaming platform where that kind of, narrative is easier to digest for people. Um, you know, so it would be like a, a new prequel film that would then continue into a, uh, an expanded, uh, version of the existing film with a lot of uh, new footage added to the existing film. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of looking at it as, is dividing it into two films to two kind of epic length films. But, but again, within each film is a division of three chapters and it's six chapters total. So, you know, it's kind of like a six chapter miniseries, except it would probably be presented as two feature films. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe if people want the option of 
skipping forward to each chapter, they can do that. You know, it's uh, just a question of, um, you know, how you, how you can platform cinema today. There's just a whole new, um, there's a whole new world kind of opening up, I think. And it's, we're seeing kind of a gray area between what is a film and what is a television series. And I see that sort of line in the sand kind of moving a bit as we mm-hmm. sort of uh, get deeper into the streaming uh, platform as, as being the primary delivery mechanism for, I hate to use the word content because it makes me sound like a corporate, you know, <laughs> thing, but it, these, these narratives, these long form narratives are going to be delivered uh, primarily through these, these streaming services. And, and, you know, I don't know how movie theaters are going to continue to exist, you know, over the next decade. I'm sure they're going to continue to exist in some form, but I don't know if they're ever going to be what they were Mm -hmm. before the pandemic. Um, I hope they recover and I'm rooting for movie theaters, but at the same time, you know, if an artist wants to create like a three or a four hour movie or a, a movie that's, a story that's even longer, but that needs to be chapterized in some kind of way, but they still want it to be a movie. They they want mm-hmm. it to be a piece of cinema and not necessarily a television series. I don't know. Maybe we're going to see uh, more of a blurring of that line or a moving of that line. Yeah. I, I want to know real quick, how many copies of this special edition Blu-ray coming out I have to buy to make the, first three chapters thing happen <laughs> well the exact listen, number <laughs> i i i think that us us being able to talk about it and i've been able to do a lot of press and i've um i've actually been working on it you know i've been working on tons of new projects and you know if i could figure out how to make a little you know donnie dark even cheaper than donnie darko budget movie um i would have directed a ton of them over the past 10 years but i all my stuff is really big and ambitious. And so I've mm. been in a workshop working on so many things, but during the pandemic, I've really been working on Southland tales and the, the new script, which is the first three chapters, the first film and the new material that would be integrated into the existing film. I've really, I'm very excited. I'm very encouraged by it because I think I've made something that's worthy of the whole endeavor that it's actually, mm-hmm. I think I've taken what I did with the graphic novels and I've really advanced them forward significantly into a much more cinematic and a much more cohesive and maybe a surprising uh, new, new uh, approach to how to expand the story. And it's, um, I feel really excited by it. And I think uh, it, the, the strategy involves animation and live action mm. and a mix mm. of both, maybe in a way that hasn't quite, uh, been done exactly before, but uh, I think it could really work, and I think it could. Mm. I think it could open the whole project up to a new audience, to people who've never seen it before, and if they get to start at chapter one, they'll experience the whole thing in a way that they can understand. But also for the people who've seen it ten times or twenty times they can experience the whole thing. And then when they, when they get to chapter four that they're already familiar with the new material that I would incorporate into, ch- into chapters four five and six would really surprise people and really like 
add a whole new dimension to the whole narrative that I think is, is really, it was, would be very exciting for me at least. So mm-hmm. I think it would translate to an audience and that's kind of what I've been working on to make sure, make sure that it all works, you know, that it all fits together. Awesome. You, you yeah. aren't kidding about the ambitiousness of Southland tales. This is your second movie. And if you thought that you had a, uh, a big cast to work with in the first movie, you've doubled or tripled it in this one. And you have made a story that I, I, I get the sense that you were in an office and you had a bunch of those like index cards and pictures of people and like strings attaching uh, <laughs> to everything to keep up with it. How in the world do you keep up with a plot this complex when you're writing and directing a movie like Southland tales? Well, having index cards and strings, you're giving me way too much credit. I'm nowhere near that organized. It's <laughs> uh, a whole different level. Yeah. It's all swirling. Back then it was all swirling around in my head, you know, um, mm-hmm. but it would, the, the organizational stuff was me writing the graphic novel prequels because mm-hmm. those came out of giving all the characters a backstory and figuring out like their motivations you know, you have the neo-Marxists and you have USI Dent and you've got, you know, Boxer and Nana Mae Frost and Bobby Frost and his wife, Madeline. And you've got all these different power structures and people who are trying to um, to screw each other over and you know, to gain power, I guess. And you've got Baron von Westville and the alternative energy pioneer who's you know at the top of the food chain who's trying to to sow chaos and everything so it was me kind of managing all of the the narrative complexity and by writing the graphic novels and getting those scripts sort of ready that i could see the big picture the big six chapter picture and that at the time was very very um probably foolish to some degree and naive on my part to think that I could ever get an audience to really embrace a story that began at chapter four, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a, a, a wise endeavor to you know, bite off more than you can chew in, in such a way. Um, but for me, it was just, I was so excited by the opportunity to have a grandiose story that sort of was bursting at the seams. And I was thinking, Oh, it'll, you know, it'll be a transmedia project. Right. You know, and, and I was really naive thinking that people would actually buy the graphic novels and read them. And, you know, we, we barely even got them published and it was, you know, it was Kevin Smith and his partner, Bob Chapman, who helped us publish them and get them printed. And it was just Mm -hmm. a real two string grassroots publication kind of endeavor. And, I think I just kind of got this rude awakening, you know, when when we went to Cannes and, you know, again, I went with an unfinished version of the film, which we just had no time and no money and we didn't have domestic distribution and no one was going to throw a whole bunch of visual effects money at us by any means. Um, And so I was just, uh, I had sort of just bitten off more than I could chew and Mm -hmm. it was just too much for 2006, you know, it just, it just mm-hmm. wasn't going to ever happen um, back then. But, you know, I got the books finished and, you know, we we got a, you know, a slightly 
more polished edit of the movie, you know, in the theatrical cut, I had to trim a lot of stuff that I, I wanted to leave in, but I got a little bit more visual effects money. You know, we had to bring in some college uh, interns from Chapman university to help. Nice. <laughs> These lovely 21 year old kids, uh, uh, Shane Powell and Chris Byall were their names. These, uh, they're now, I think working in the visual effects industry and they're well-paid by now, but, uh, so I, you know, it was a, it was a real, um, you know, uphill battle in a lot of ways, you know, after we went to Cannes, but, uh, you know, we got it as far as we could and we got the books published and, um, you know, here we are, you know, 15 some odd years later and, um, guess who's leaving the Oval Office tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) The, um, uh, one of the things that's, uh, fun about, uh, watching this is seeing someone like, uh, Dwayne Johnson, who at the time was being groomed as the new Schwarzenegger. Uh, I believe he had been in like three or four action films, uh, they were trying to sort of pass the mantle off to him and everything. And I don't, he had been in a, he had been in the sequel to get shorty called be cool. But I, I feel like this is his, maybe his first like real let's do something different kind of project that he does in his acting career. Uh, it's really interesting watching him in this, especially now seeing what his career became the same goes for Justin Timberlake who had not really done any acting up until this point, but 2006 was his year, man. He did Alpha Dog. He did Black Snake Moan. He did this movie. What did you see in these two guys back then that said they need to be in your movie? Well, I I think with Dwayne and with Justin, and this extends to virtually every cast member in the movie, um, they're, they're both just bursting with charisma. And they have a natural, intuitive performance history. And going back to with Justin, since he was, you know, in the Mickey Mouse Club and just been on stage his whole career. You know, and with Dwayne going all the way back to being in the pro wrestling ring and performing. And that's wonderful training ground for any performer. And I look at at anyone with a a long performance history like that is having enormous potential as an actor. And, you know, these guys can think on their feet. You can give them really complex direction, you know, ask them to step into a really complicated situation and they'll figure it out. They'll like in 30 Mm -hmm. seconds, they'll figure out how to do something and to give you something great. Like they can think on their feet better than anyone. And, not a lot of actors can do that. There's some, you know, a lot of dramatic actors or, you know, actors that have been on the stage for years and, you know, classically trained actors, they need a lot of rehearsal. You know, they need a lot of preparation and they need a lot of mental time to get into something. And I'd say the common denominator of every actor that I worked with on Southland Tales is they all have like a comedy improv you know, think on your feet quality where they can just adapt really quickly and they can Mm -hmm. come on set and I can just throw them into a situation that's completely bonkers and they figure it out and they, they're not, they're not intimidated by it and they have fun with it and they don't, you know, they don't have, um, 
all of uh, this baggage or, or anxiety or neurosis that they're showing up with, they're ready to roll up their sleeves and and just uh, kind of go crazy the way some of my favorite, you know, improv people can do. And, and I, I constantly I'm going to comedy clubs and I'm going to improv theater. I'm always moonlighting and showing up at these events in Los Angeles because I love these performers and anyone who can think on their feet like that to me is someone I'm excited to work with at some point. So that was the common denominator with everyone is none of them were afraid. They were all good, you know, with comedy, you know, even if they hadn't been a, you know, a cast member on Saturday night live, which I think six or seven of my cast in South Southland tales had been cast members on Saturday night live. A lot of the other actors had already hosted the show, you know, several times. I felt like everyone stepped up and delivered in, in an exciting way. And, um, you know, even just for an example with Justin Timberlake, um, we only had Justin for one 16 hour day at the Santa Monica pier. And, wow. <laughs> and when we put together that um, the big musical sequence, which is sort of the heartbeat of the entire film. Yes, where, it is. Um, you know, he lip syncs to the song, all these things that I've done by the killers, which at the time was like one of the most popular songs in the world. It was like a, <laughs> a huge smash hit song and we didn't have the rights for it secured yet. And I had this whole vision for Justin doing it. Um, our choreographer, Marguerite Derricks, who was just the most incredible choreographer. She worked with the dancers. We toured the arcade at the Santa Monica pier. The dancers rehearsed everything. And then on the day we had four hours with Justin out of the 16 hour day, we had allocated four hours to shoot that sequence. And Justin had no rehearsal. There was like no hmm. preparation we told him about the song like 48 hours before he shot it. So he could kind of try and memorize the lyrics and stuff. And we just put him into the scene and it was four Steadicam shots. And he just, you know, I gave him a Budweiser. We had a six pack of Budweiser, you know, maybe like a case of it, you know? Um, and uh, even his costume, we just had a white t-shirt and I'm like, this isn't quite working. So I grabbed a bunch of fake blood from our prop, makeup department and I painted the blood on his shirt, you know, um, at the last minute, like, I think the blood was still wet on his shirt when we started shooting. So it was all just like by, it was just last minute, crazy organization. You know, it was as organized as we could do it with the rehearsed dancers and the, the steady cam shots were all blocked out, but Justin just dove into that at the last minute. And he, he nailed the whole sequence. And then once we shot that sequence, I realized he had to be the narrator because he was breaking the fourth wall and he was mm. looking straight into the lens. So I'm like, by virtue of this uh, fourth wall situation that we're dealing with, he must be the narrator of this film because he will <laughs> already be breaking the fourth wall as the narrator speaking directly to the audience. So it was sort of like things were being structurally um, solved and reorganized as I was shooting everything. And, and so then we brought Justin in to record all the voiceover. We did some live voiceover to get a taste of it. And I have to say his voiceover in the can version, I prefer now mm. because mm. it has a more playful, 
kind of sarcastic, uh, mischievous tone to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so what happened when we went to Cannes, we were so scorned. We were shamed. (laughs) We were attacked. (laughs) And, and, you know, we, we were just like this wounded animal that we were just trying to, you know, get back on our feet. Um, And Sony, you know, had bought the film they're like, listen, we're going to let you, you know, have a little bit more visual effects money, but you got to cut it down. You know, Richard, you got to cut the length down. And they they had suggested, you know, bringing Justin back to re-record some new, you know, we were going to do some new voiceover in places and had to reorganize some scenes and stuff. And, and so I had Justin re-record the voiceover to sound uh, more like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the new direction that I gave him. And I think it's because we felt uh, like we were so um, – we had been uh, – the polarizing response at can made me feel like, oh, were we, were we being too arrogant or too uh, flippant or, or uh, mischievous in our tone or something? And I, I felt like, oh, if, if it's more like – Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, it'll feel more, the tone will be more of like a World War III uh, wounded soldier, you know, who's been, who has PTSD and it has that, that kind of tragedy, uh, that, that stoicism to it. Uh, I, I was just sort of trying to push him in a new direction. So, but I have to say, at, you know, 15 some odd years later, you know, with Trump being president and just the insanity of the world, I kind of prefer the sarcastic, playful, uh, can <laughs> narration, you know? So, you know, yeah. if, if we're, if we're able to do the big six hour version, I feel like I would, you know, if I were to get to work with, with Justin again, I would, I would probably want him to do all the new voiceover for the whole, you know, for the first three chapters in that more playful tone, because I just feel like, that was what we were setting out to do at, you know, at the very beginning. And I think he did a great job in both versions, but I just feel like the, the tone of the original can voiceover is more fitting uh, today, given everything that's transpired in the world, I guess. Yeah. So. I, uh, I, the, the, there's one line reading in this movie that has always just made me, I, I remember it. I've remembered it ever since it's one, it's one of the most unforgettable things I've seen in a long time is when uh, Dwayne Johnson goes up to Bai Ling and she tells him about what happened, what would happen if uh, two of the same souls on the earth, two, two same souls would shake hands. And he says the world would collapse upon itself. You stupid bitch. And then kisses her. How much of that is scripted and how much was that just inspired at the time uh, I, I've got to know. It's one of those things that it's just, it, I love it. I laugh every time I see it. Well, that, that was actually scripted. Um, yeah, I believe it's the fourth dimension will collapse upon itself. You right, 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 right. Um, you know, that was, um, a lot, you know, I have to really hand a lot of that off to Dwayne and to Bai Ling because, um, they're both great physical performers. They really mm-hmm. know, how to move their bodies and they really know how to, they can also just really deliver a line in a really iconic way. And that mm-hmm. sort of confrontation between the two of them where he has her kind of pinned up against the bar and she's sort of blowing cigarette smoke in his face. And 
it was all very much inspired by um, film noir from the 1940s and the 50s. And I showed everyone Kiss Me Deadly. We did a special screening mm. of Robert Aldrich's Chris, uh, Kiss Me Deadly, the mm -hmm. 1955 film noir. Um, we screened it at the New Beverly for the whole cast and crew before we started shooting. And I remember, you know, I had all the hair and makeup people there and I had uh, Lou Lazara, who's Dwayne's makeup and guy for years. And he did all the prosthetic work for Southland Tales and did Justin's scarring and the old age makeup on Kevin Smith and, and, um, <laughs> and prosthetics on Amy Poehler and, and Wood Harris. I mean, everything. So, but so kiss me deadly was like a foundational point. And so Dwayne sort of was emulating Ralph Meeker and Ralph Meeker's performance in kiss me deadly. And part of that was sort of like, the machismo and the sort of like rough kind of manhandling kind of machismo, uh, you know, the way he kind of approaches women and, and kiss me deadly was in that kind of um, th that manner of, of film noir from that era. And it was sort of um, meant to play into kind of how would Ralph Meeker deliver uh that line and how would he kiss the femme fatale and and a film like kiss me deadly and i think Dwayne and by lang just got really amped up in the scene and by was like richard i want to fall over i want to fall and collapse to the ground <laughs> she wanted to be so kind of overwhelmed by the moment that she would fall and so again, that's where the actors kind of bring a lot of their energy into the equation. And, uh, and again, that's one of Dwayne's gifts too. One of his many gifts as an actor is when you give him like an iconic line, he really knows how to deliver it in a way, you know, where it's like he's back in the pro wrestling ring and he's got to deliver to the very, the, the, the cheap seats at the very high top of the, the, Megadome, wherever he's performing, you know, he knows yeah. how to project, but also how to deliver in a really intimate way, you know, and do little tiny intimate like movements with his face and stuff. And so, um, yeah, it, it was, I was really blessed to get to work with, with all these actors. Yeah. Um, uh, uh Barrett, uh, what was your burning question? I think we're going to have to let him go. Unfortunately, we're going to, we, I could probably talk about, all these movies for hours and hours and hours, but we don't have yeah. that kind of time. Well, speaking of the, uh, the killers, all the things I've done, uh, <laughs> which, which, you're, which you're right, because, you know, hot fuss was the hot shit at that point. That was the, uh, that was the, the, the hallmark and seeing a pop star of the caliber of Justin Timberlake lip sync to it, uh, was just so bizarre and delightful uh, for it. But Speaking of music, just in general, you mentioned uh, getting the rights to that song. Going back a little bit to Donnie Darko, you know the the songs, not the the score. The scores and and the music is great, but the it doesn't get any more iconic than the Tears for Fears uh, song when they're showing the breadth of the the high school, nor you know the the opening song of the Never Tear Us Apart with NXS, and certainly. Uh, the, the, the sequence that Chris was talking to at the end of the movie 
uh, with Gary Jules covering Tears for Fears uh, Mad World, which is now uh, kind of in the discussion of Jeff Buckley covering Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah and Jeff Buckley's is the definitive version. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and so, so the, the thing that you think of with mad world is the Gary Jules version. What, how much say, I, I know you have the final say, but how much influence do you have over your music supervisors uh, on what you say? We've got to go after that and we have to get that song uh, versus, you know, see what you can get and, uh, I'll work with what we have. Uh, is this very, very important to you? Is this a, a important part of the, uh, the process? Yes. So I, my approach with pop songs is I'm really, really aggressive with mapping in at least two or three, like foundational pop songs in the narrative of my movies. Now, mm. not all the movies will have pop songs or, you know, depending on what kind of movie it is that I, I, I make, but for definitely my first two movies, there were these foundational building block songs that I had written into the script that I choreographed into the sequence that were like a fabric of the actual screenplay, you know? And so, mm. and, uh, and Donnie, it was it was in excess, tears for fears, and maybe one other. And mm. then I relied upon my music supervisors, Manish Raval and Tom Wolf, who did both of my first two films, who are some of the best guys in the business, to help me flesh out the rest of it. You know, and so they were able to bring in Echo and the Bunnymen, which I was familiar yeah. with. But, you know, mm. and then they were able to bring in um, Joy Division and the Church, mm-hmm. and you know. And all these other songs. And so for Donnie, it was uh, this partnership where I like gave them, you know, two or three iconic songs and they filled everything in with all these suggestions that they were sending me. And they're very intuitive and they know what I'm looking for. And so they've been really essential partners for me in helping me um, kind of map everything out. Um, And with with, uh, Mad World, I have to give almost all the credit to Michael Andrews, our composer, who's the score composer for Donnie Darko, and then mm. his friend, Gary Jules. So we're recording the score in the Hollywood Hills at Mike's home studio. It's December of 2000. We have been invited into Sundance competition and we're scrambling as all filmmakers are over Christmas time to get their mixes done in time for Sundance, which is just a few mm. short weeks away. And so he's like, Richard, I was thinking for the end of the movie, you know, I can just do a piano melody or I can bring up my friend, Gary Jules. You know, he does this cover of Tears for Fears, Mad World. And so, mm-hmm. wait a minute, Mad World, isn't that kind of like a fast paced song? Yeah. He's like, yeah. <laughs> He's like I'm going to play you the original, but don't worry. It, what we're going to do is like a ballad version. So he played the original and I heard the lyrics and the lyrics were very poignant and they spoke to isolation and loneliness and alienation and, um, and then he Gary drove up from San Diego. They mm-hmm. got in the studio. Gary performed the lyric. It was really beautiful. Mike got on the piano and did the piano. And the whole song, the lyric and the piano were recorded in like an hour. What? And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he put it up against the, the montage at the end of the movie. And I was like, this is beautiful. Of course. It, let's do it. <laughs> and... 
you know, of course, we went to Sundance with only festival clearance rights to the songs, which oh. is sort of like um, a one-time only permission slip <laughs> from huh. from the, the the labels and stuff. Because like we were waiting on domestic distribution, so um, we luckily, you know, once all the distribution finally came to place five months later after Sundance, because the movie was not well received. Um, we hmm. got to keep about 75% of the music. So we then put hmm. Echo and the Bunny Man up front, which works great. And, you know, it's sort of, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, if in an ideal situation, I would probably use Echo and the Bunny Man twice in the movie. I'd leave it up front. And I'd, I'd also, in the director's cut, we have this, the, the all night version of, of, uh, the Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen for the party sequence when Jake and Gretchen are coming down the stairs and that big climactic mm-hmm. moment. So I'd probably like to use it twice in an, in a if there was ever like a third version of the movie. Um, but uh, so it, all this is just it's like an intuitive feeling and um, it's a collaboration. But I definitely have like a strong point of view on at least two or three songs that I know are going to be foundational. And um, for Southland Tales, the foundational song was The Killers, All These Things That I've Done. Mm-hmm. And then I approached Moby early on, before we even started shooting the movie, about doing the score. And he got really excited. He read the script. He gave me a bunch of tracks that ended up being like the Hotel Disc 2 um, album which was basically mm. advanced score for Southland Tales that he wrote for Southland Tales. And so I had so much Moby score um, ready to choreograph to certain scenes in the movie. Um, I believe the other foundational songs for Southland Tales were the Pixies, Wave of Mutilation, mm. Surf Rock version, mm. which I knew was going to be after the, sh- the shooting of uh, Dion and Dream when Amy Poehler and Wood Harris are <laughs> murdered by... John Lovitz, and then um, uh, Muse, um, Blackout, the song Blackout. Mm, yeah. or, um, after the big Melrose Place scene, which like, we like to call it, at uh, the Vaughn Smallhouse Mansion, where all the characters are convened for the big dramatic uh, showdown. Um, mm-hmm. And Boxer drives off in the uh, 1951 Jaguar convertible, which is a replica of what Ralph Meeker drove. Oh, nice. <laughs> wow. So that was a uh, uh, blackout by Muse, And then, so Manish and Tom, our, our music supervisors, they come to me with all these other wonderful ideas. And whether it's Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, with uh, Howl, yeah. the Mega Zeppelin, um, and then Blur for the end credits. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, but then even just little like kind of old pieces like Bertha Tillman, Oh My Angel, and um, some of like the old kind of... Um, music from the thirties and forties and fifties. That's the sort of the wonderful little flourishes where you like to kind of uh, fill in the sort of canvas of music and everything. So it's a real uh, well choreographed process, but it's not all etched in stone. You know, you've got the two or three foundational Mm -hmm. songs and then you start playing fleshing everything out and sort of it's like a canvas you know you, you have your charcoal outlines that are foundational and then you start painting in the flourishes at the end and stuff so um it's just uh it's a real 
it's a real foundational process for me. I'm not one of those people that just throws, that just slaps all the songs in at the very end of the mix. You yeah. Know? That's not me. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's, and you got to really partner with a great music supervisor um, because they have a breadth of musical knowledge that I will never have. I just, I only have enough CPU in my brain and I just can't memorize all the music. <laughs> I understand. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I need someone who has that like deep, deep knowledge of like reaching back to like decades into the past and finding an obscure piece of music that just is, you know, really special. So, well, you perfectly encapsulated late eighties, uh, with the, the, uh, the, the, the soundtrack to Donnie Darko. I mean, that the head over heels, uh, you can't imagine that scene any other way. Right. Especially with with the techniques that you used with the zoom, you know, the 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 fast forwarding and then the slow motion and then the fast forwarding and the slow motion. Uh, and and especially those first keyboard hits uh, as they're getting out of the bus, it, it just works perfectly. And it's the same thing with uh, with all these things I've done uh, with uh, Timberlake that is hilarious to hear the background of that, that the, the shirt may have still been wet and he's just, he's just kind of going on the fly. It's, uh, it's just amazing. You, you have, you have the ability to create these multi-sensory uh, experiences uh, that really stick with you, you know, all these years later, 2015 years later on. And I really appreciate it. Uh, I can't wait to see more of the universe of, of Southland tales actually. Yeah, you know, there's I've already mapped out um some new foundational songs. <laughs> uh nice. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say what they are. You know, again, there's been so much work that's been done um on many projects, not just Southland Tales, but um and you know, it's uh, a lot of foundation has been uh laid out. So, you know, provided um we are getting ourselves out of this nightmare. I'm, I'm hoping to be in, in production on more than one project uh, and be in production for quite a long time, you know, given that all the writing has been done, like, again, uh, there's just been an enormous amount of, of writing. Uh, there, a long foundation has been laid out for, um, for a long time. So as frustrating as it has been, you know, not to be behind the camera, um, I haven't been idle and, and, you know, things are in place to, you know, hopefully, uh, be working at a, at a, a healthy budget level and, um, to deliver all the bells and whistles that people want and, uh, hopefully, uh, bring some exciting cinema into the world. So awesome. I can't wait. Cannot wait to see it. Um, uh, whenever you get done with it, uh, it'll be interesting to revisit that world. Um, and maybe one day we'll have, we'll have a longer amount of time to really go into a deep dive into your films and everything. But, uh, but, uh, I'd like to thank you so much for uh, coming in and talking with us today. Yes. Thank Thank you guys. This has been a blast. Uh, I appreciate your, your interest in all of this and, uh, officially, we have, let's count it, 
22 and a half hours. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> until, uh, you'll hear, you'll hear the collective champagne popping uh, <laughs> in, in the next few hours. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, we'd like to thank uh, Richard Kelly for his time. The uh, uh, special edition Blu-ray of Southland Tales comes out on January 26th. Uh, and if you haven't given that movie a chance, uh, do it when it comes out. It's, uh, it's well worth your time. All right, everybody, it's time to talk about BetterHelp once again. BetterHelp! Let me tell you about BetterHelp, man. This thing has been a godsend for many people, especially in these times. Uh, BetterHelp is offered around the world. Uh, What you do is you sign up, you answer a few questions, you get matched to a licensed professional counselor, uh, and you're off and running. Uh, Everything is uh, within a counseling page, so your scheduling, uh, your communication with your counselor, um, any kind of uh, documentation that you want to go back and forth, whether it's worksheets, not that they give you homework or anything like that, but uh, things to, to helpful reminders, things to keep in mind as you go about your therapeutic process. Uh, all of that is within your counseling room that you can access with your computer, with your tablet, your phone. Uh, could not be easier. Better help. Uh, has reached millions of people. Uh, they are still hiring counselors because there are so many people kind of, uh, signing up. And uh, it's it's been fantastic for many, 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 many people. Here's a, here's a piece of advice that I wanted to give today, and that's to look at um, therapy um, like a maintenance medication, right? So like yeah. as an analogy, I, am, I have anxiety, so I have a daily medicine that I take um, and I'm supposed to take it at the same time every day because it's a slow release. And if I miss one, I don't feel the anxiety right away. It takes a while because because uh, it takes a time for it to get out of my bloodstream and system. Uh, and so then when I catch back up, it takes a while to get back into my system. So that's why I take it every day at the same time. Now, I'm not saying do therapy every day at the same time, uh, but put yourself <laughs> on some kind of a schedule Um Rather than being erratic with when your therapy yeah. is, maybe not yeah. the same time every day, but uh, every two weeks or every month or what, ha- keep yourself on a maintenance schedule so that uh, the benefits of that therapy don't bleed out of your system uh, before you have another session. Absolutely. And go to betterhelp.com slash syncast to get 10% off your first month. Uh, that month is critical. Use that month wisely. Uh, because that really is kind of the launch point in your therapeutic journey and your counseling journey. Uh, so really make sure you know what you uh, want to work on, discuss with your counselor to see what you can work on, what they think you need to work on. I know it's been good for me. Uh, so if you do feel like you need some help uh, with anger, with uh, depression, with anxiety, with worry, stress, um, anything uh, related to your mental health, go to betterhelp.com slash syncast. We love it. We use it. If you feel like you need it, check it out. All right. Well, now that that interview is over and I loved every minute of it, mm-hmm. uh, we got we got time for some questions. Let's do some questions. Question. Question. I got something to say. I am listening. Yes, indeed. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, similar questions to this about crossovers and, and 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 combining and stuff like that. So here's the first one. What two characters from unrelated movies would you like to see interact? This person has a very nice example 
of Dirty Harry Callahan, played by Clint Eastwood, obviously, and Paul Kersey, mm-hmm. played by Charles Bronson from Death Wish. Uh, yeah, one would be a two, vigilante. Two yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be mm-hmm. a big gun off. Uh, what do yeah. you guys think? I mean, if they if, if they piss each other off enough, I yeah. guess. I mean, maybe they like each other. Maybe they have beers. Maybe the movie's completely different. Maybe that's just like they're going out bowling and <laughs> drinking beers and stuff, beers. and then and then shooting people at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. Okay. So I I don't know if I gave this enough thought, but Sherlock Holmes. And Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct. Ah. Because Sherlock Holmes is definitely going to figure out that she's behind everything by the end of this. She, He is not going to be in bed with her with an ice pick underneath the bed uh, at the end of, of the movie that Sherlock Holmes is in and everything. So I think Sherlock Holmes would solve it. And the question is, somebody as sexual as Catherine Trammell, would he be able, since he is classically like celibate and in his movies would he be able to succumb to Catherine Trammell you know um, I'm not uh, a, a Sherlock scholar or anything does he ever get it on like ever not does he from not what have I've seen. a romantic interest whatsoever not from what I've seen um, almost every adaptation I've seen of his of, of a Sherlock Holmes is he's he's just always single doesn't doesn't care about relationships the only thing he cares about is his relationship to watson Mm. and there's you know there's been discussion as to whether you know holmes and watson may like be gay or you know these type of things uh these type of things um but uh but but there's a reason why holmes gets upset that watson uh you know starts dating or or gets married in some versions is because he's jealous mm. that uh, he won't be around. But it it sounds like to me more more likely that my interpretation is he's just upset that he's not around for the friendship and the and the playing the uh, the ideas off their off of each other's heads. I think that's what he finds more stimulating uh, than uh, any any kind of like you know romantic relationship or anything. So. Hmm. Hmm. it would be interesting to see if this would be something that he would, he would actually go through with and like have a, there's a, there's like actual sex happening. And then he's like, you know what though? This doesn't change the fact that I believe that she did it. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I'm going to sneak in two answers. The first, the first one is uh, I want to see the bullshit off between Matt Damon's character in the informant and Matt Damon's character in The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, um, yeah. They are both absolute masters of bullshit. One just keeps talking. Uh, that's Mark Whitaker. And the other mm-hmm. one kind of uses costumes and props and accents or voices. Um, <clears throat> I just think that would be fun. But the one I just thought of while you were talking is the dumbest thing I've ever come up with, but I want to watch this movie right now. I want to see a buddy cop like comedy movie with Batman and Vince Vaughn from swingers, Trent. (laughs) So they're in the car and Trent's just constantly, how many beautiful babies you bang Batman? (laughs) How many, how many, and Batman just has to grumble and deal with it. I think that. Yeah. 
hilarious. Maybe and just course, as an SNL sketch as a whole. And of course, but. Batman has bedded down many women. And of course, Batman may like break and say, uh, my count's pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> it's up there. My count, it's, it's intimidating. My count's pretty high. Yeah, because yeah. pussy is good. It's, I can't count. <laughs> I can't count. That's funny. You know, I, I still, every time I watch Talented Mr. Ripley, I, I, the circumstances have to be absolutely perfect for him to get away with what he gets away with. You know, like he, he is a great bullshitter. But, like, he's so close to getting caught so many fucking times. You could call it the lucky Mr. Ripley. <laughs> and you be wrong. The, true, the true luck, I think the biggest luck stroke in the whole film is that they send a different cop yeah. uh, to Rome to interview him because they're mad at the cop who let him get away. Yeah. Uh, and, or not Rome, wherever the fuck. Um, but uh, that's the biggest, because if it's the same inspector who shows up he's done yeah uh so that's the biggest i mean he did do a lot though to kind of like to kind of he did a lot yeah he got lucky but he still did a lot well i mean hey you could say and i'm I'm going a little off script here but like you could say the same for ethan hunt so many times because like it's always like well we'll just have to hope that they haven't met in person (laughs) It's like, yeah. it's like every fucking movie. Yep. <laughs> the mask is broken, so we'll just have to make sure that they're not. Nobody knows. You know, John Mark, the reason, everything's fine. The reason, the reason why things ha- work, though, in Talented Mr. Ripley is that most people are going to sit there and think, no, nobody would go through all this trouble. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and a lot of the times, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's because uh, the – the truth sounds so fucking out there. People are like, nah, he's probably just, you know, he's just, he's just a weird dude well, or whatever. And Dickie Greenleaf is not a dude that would get murdered, right? Like that just doesn't mm-hmm. make sense, nor would Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. So yeah, they have to yeah. kind of invent different. And especially if he's a playboy that just leaves at the, 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 the flight of ideas, you know, it, it makes mm-hmm. more sense than he got whacked by an oar in uh, in his boat. You know, I'm I'm kind of okay with it. This movie's been running lately on one of these movie channels. I've probably seen this thing or had it on close to thirty or forty times at this point in my life. And th- the more I watch it, the more I hate Dickie Greenleaf, and that's mm-hmm. just a testament to Jude Law. Mm-hmm. But he is he is dirty in so many different ways. Uh, when when he when he smacks him with that oar and there's nothing on his face and then suddenly this red line opens up from where the oar hit him, mm-hmm. a tiny little part of me is happy. Oh, well, of course, because oh. right before then, he's insulting the fuck out of, out of uh, Matt but Damon. But always viewed him as beneath him. He views mm-hmm. everyone as beneath him. And I'm not saying I want him to die. But I'm glad he has a little pain there because he yeah. had it coming. Even when, even when he's figured it out and he finally brings out the truth. He can't be anything but more dicky about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, no pun intended, but, uh, but you know, the, what was the college? You didn't really go to Cambridge. Princeton. Or 
Princeton. Princeton. You didn't really go to Princeton, did you? And and uh, and uh, and uh, he go and I guess I can't. Does he admit it? And then he goes, yeah, because Margie and I had a bet, and he just you know he's very satisfied with himself that he yeah. figured that out, even though it's been fucking months or whatever, you know, however <laughs> long it's been at this point, you know, well, he's got. I mean, it's just a toy to him. That's what Ripley is. It's just a, mm-hmm. a, a new toy who comes with some of dad's money. Um, anyway, this movie, God, it's quickly climbing up the ranks of my all-time favorites. It really is. It's it's beautiful, <clears throat> and it's smart, and it's great performances. Anyway, it's certainly, I, that fucking piano opening is now as iconic in my ear as that first sound of A Few Good Men. Like, if I hear that... <laughs> I'm like, oh, town of Mr. Ripley's off. Nice. <laughs> nice. So to, to answer the question, it's funny. Out of all the mov- movies in the world, uh, Chris and I chose uh, partially the same one. Uh, because I, I'd like to see a movie where Catherine Trammell, Sharon Stone from Basic Instinct, uh, is interacting slash mentoring Sarah Michelle Gellar's character from Cruel Intentions. Oh, uh, damn. Because they're, they're both obviously using sex as a manipulation device and mm-hmm. you know Catherine Tramell's probably in her late 20s early 30s at that point and uh she could definitely give some tips to high school aged uh uh Sarah Michelle Gellar's character and uh mm-hmm. they could team up and form a terrifying combo that would lead to a lot of sex and a lot of death. And I would want yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do not want to see her character under the tutelage of Catherine Trammell right? because she's she already, has a bachelor's I, degree in psychology. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, and I would also like to see the more I think about the Sopranos, the more just, I haven't even watched it over again, but I kind of want to mm-hmm. because James Gandolfini is such a magnetic presence in that. And I would like to see him go up against a real, real ass uh, contemporary, meaning or, or somebody at his level, not Uncle June, not uh, his capos and everything, not the law. It'd be awesome to see him have a conversation with the mob boss like Michael Corleone or or even uh, Sonny Black from uh, who really can't get out of his own way from fucking uh, Donnie Brasco. Mm-hmm. Uh but like somebody that has the respect and the pull that really he does, you know, uh, imagine how tense it would be between Al Pacino's Michael Corleone and, and James Gandolfini's Tony Soprano in establishing territory and figuring out, you know, a, a deal of some kind, because as we all know, Michael is not, his father, where he can bring the heads of the five families together and negotiate a peace. Michael is, I'm going to get what I want and whatever you want comes later mm-hmm. <laughs> and you will owe me something. Yeah. Uh, but Tony's also the same way. And so you could, you could see this just absolutely. I, I would be glued to my team. I know it's anachronistic, but I would be absolutely glued to it if that happened. Yeah, almost any time you have a big, huge, like, gangster from any kind of movie, it would be great to see them uh, square off against, uh, you know, anybody from other movies or whatever. Like, who would win that? You know, who, you know, who would who would be the guy who who uh, outsmarted or or outmuscled 
uh, the other guy, you know, exactly. It be- it's usually good versus evil, right? It's cops and robbers. It's heat. It, it's Pacino versus De Niro, uh, or it's, or it's, uh, the feds versus, uh, Tony or, or, or something like that. It's, it's the enemy of my enemy is my enemy or the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, uh, as, similar as to famously the, put by Alien, Alien versus Predator. Exactly, or Dick Tracy <laughs> and uh, uh, Warren Beatty and Dick Tracy. That's right. Uh, That's right. The, you know, you see it when Lorraine Bracco is going through, or when uh, Malfi is going through her thing, and you can see Tony Soprano, as loathsome as he is, could become a hero to her if she would mm-hmm. just allow him to step in and do his gangster shit. Yeah, uh, but but she doesn't, which is such a great thing. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so it would be who would you cheer for in that? I think I'd probably be cheering for Tony Soprano to outsmart yeah. Michael uh, because Michael's just such we love him, but he's such a fucking dick. Yeah, yeah, I watched that uh, recut of Godfather three that came out. Did you really? Uh, what would you think? Yeah, I don't remember the original Godfather 3 enough mm-hmm. to be like, oh, that's a big improvement or anything. And I still don't really like this one either. Yeah. Um uh it's there's just there's just too much about it that uh that uh you know is uh, there's just too much about it that I don't like. Uh I I don't feel like they set up Sofia Coppola's character enough to where it's devastating that she gets shot mm-hmm. and killed at the end of that movie. Uh, and even in this one, it's not, it doesn't feel that way. I mean, they, they spend so much time on her and Andy Garcia and their cousins and they're, they're like, they sure are. and they're like, you know, potentially banging behind the scenes and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. They, they spend so much time on that. And then by the end of it, when, you know, she gets shot, it's just like, uh, this just doesn't feel like you earned it. <laughs> it doesn't feel, yeah, I mean, maybe she deserved it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. I wonder how drastically different that movie would be with Winona Ryder in that, uh, in that role. Because mm-hmm. uh, Winona Ryder is as wonderful as she is. How are you going to save that role, honestly? Yeah. Uh, there's still cousins banging. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, uh, I don't know. It's uh, the, the, the story itself is it, it feels a little bit, um, I mean, he's buying this, some sort of this big, huge corporation at the beginning of it. And this pisses off a bunch of the families and, and, uh, and, uh, he, you know, it, it doesn't have that same kind of like layering of, of, uh, motivations and plot and everything that all the, the other two do. It's just kind of very basic, like, well, he buys this thing and people feel uh, disrespected for some reason. So let's try to shoot him from a helicopter later. And it just. Well, um, that's. Yeah, that's the problem is that, you know, he's buying off the debt from the Vatican. mm -hmm. And so like all that stuff, the mob being involved with the Vatican, all that is super interesting. Yeah. But it becomes just a, uh, a means to an end. It becomes like the inciting incident yeah and then they kind of leave all that behind they touch on it every once in a while but yeah you're right if if they had spent more time on that aspect of it yeah because uh, he's at the vatican i think at the beginning of the movie like talking to the the it's a the great pope, scene at like, the beginning the, the it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. classic way of setting up that whole thing but yeah i was disappointed next question here uh what are two movie universes oh i went up top there Ooh. universes 
They could have a crossover because they share an actor playing a similar role. Example, uh, birthday boy from yesterday, as we record this, 90 years young, James Earl Jones mm. in uh, Sneakers and Jack Ryan franchise. Yeah. Uh, James Earl Jones plays a CIA guy in both. I love we that. We are the yep. United States government. We do not do that sort of thing. Thanks for stealing uh, the best answer, question asker. Um, yeah. So uh, I picked 1993's Demolition Man. and 1995's judge dread um and Mm -hmm. there are two actors that these these movies share so yeah stallone as a as a cop obviously futuristic cop and they can easily find a way to make i think I think after the the events of Demolition Man, where they're like, okay, we're done with that oppressive society where we only can play Taco Bell jingles on the radio and shit, and we can finally start <laughs> fucking again, all that, there's going to be somebody else that comes up probably four years later, you know, the New Order or some bullshit, and yeah. uh, and they're gonna they're gonna make everything fucked up again. So he has to become Judge Dredd. But Rob Schneider is also in both of those movies. Uh, god damn um and i think i think schneider i think in both cases rob schneider i i don't remember everything about his character but he's playing rob schneider like you know characters in both movies so uh so those those two movies would easily um uh those those two movies would easily kind of uh, uh blend into each other at some point I also think it's possible that Ryan Reynolds playing Van Wilder could end up crossing over into Deadpool at some point. Of course. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Talk about a similar character. Yeah. What uh what happens at the very end of Demolition Day? Does the Dennis Leary crew come out of the thing and yeah. and they all kind of yeah. enmesh and, and and figure out a new society? He and, he and to- uh Benjamin Bratt fresh face cop and yeah, they all are like I can change and you can change. <laughs> we all can change. Well, yeah, and with Benjamin Bratt and Sandra Bullock, you can uh, go into miscongeniality after. Yeah, that. you can. Yeah, you can. You can. You can. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to see. I, I, I think Bull Durham and Tin Cup probably are the same universe, just because yeah. they're both Ron Shelton movies. Um, I. If I wanted to, I could probably make an argument that they're even the same character, that Costner's even playing the same character. Um, A lot of professional athletes, even minor leaguers, are really good golfers. Um, And I could see – now, of course, Tin Cup has a backstory that doesn't include being a minor league baseball player. Um, But the tone of both of those movies is very similar. Uh, You've got characters with real heart, but you've still got big belly laughs. Um, So I think that would work. The other one I wrote down was you could do like the Bruce Greenwood is the president uh, trifecta or quadfecta. I just went with National Treasure Book of Secrets and King and Golden Circle um, because he's the president in both of those. And so maybe changing his, he's going to be changing from really good to really bad in between. That's right. That's right. When when Nicholas Cage is trying to kidnap him, uh, perhaps uh, Eggsy shows up and uh, puts a stop to it. I don't know. Yeah. 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 No, I think, I think it's, I think it's believable because he'd be like, you know what? I don't trust anybody anymore. You know, you know, uh, fuck the world, you know, it's funny. He's playing the president in two shitty sequels. (laughs) 
<laughs> in action franchises. Mm-hmm. Not the original, just the shitty for uh, the sequels. Yep. Uh, the two movie universes uh, with the same actors, uh, I would say the first one is Contact and Mission Impossible. Um, the uh, Because even though they are... Contact was 97 and mm-hmm. uh, 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 what was the last Mission Impossible? Going Rogue, Rogue oh. Protocol. Pro- well, Fallout was, was the last Fallout. Fallout. Yes. And mm-hmm. Fallout uh, was 2018, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, you could see because she's a stern diplomat in both of them. I think she's like uh, a member of the cabinet. Uh, at least maybe she's the press secretary or something in Did you uh, say Angela Bassett because I'm not sure I even heard Angela Bassett. Oh, I'm sorry. Angela Bassett is is okay. the the uh, actor that would <laughs> okay. be the nexus between these. Uh because she's a, a diplomat in both of them. I think she's part of the cabinet in contact and she will say something sternly and officially and then we'll exit for most of the movie and then we'll come back, say something stern and official and then mm-hmm. leave and come back. But oh, yeah. she also mm-hmm. does make a memorable presence, anything that she does. So uh, in Mission Impossible, if you can get that in the contact universe, they're in space. <laughs> and so Ethan Hunt must do the impossible in space. And you know that motherfucker would go up to actual space He's and film those stunts mm-hmm. He's doing and it do for that real. shit. Mm-hmm. He's doing it for He's real? Doing- him and James Cameron, he's going to go to the space station. He's already gotten clearance. Uh, I think it's James Cameron. He's going to go to of course he's gonna make some kind of space station thriller while he's up there. Of course. <laughs> hey, hey, can we shoot a movie while we're up here? Like, I'm <laughs> not, already I'm, up here. Look, I'm James not making Cameron, that up. The reason why James Cameron doesn't make a movie like, you know, every three or four years is because he's like, fuck this earth shit. I'm tired of... You know, I'm tired of doing just this basic stuff. Why don't we, you know, like Titanic, he had to go down and like actually do several dives to check out (laughs) the actual Titanic. And then he, and then Avatar, it's like, well, we just don't have the right effects yet. I think he invents a new camera for it or whatever. And then now it's been, it's been 12 years since Avatar came out. I mean, (laughs) he, the guy is, I mean, of course he's like, yeah, let's go to space. That's our next thing. There you go. Okay, so look, he apparently there's not a director attached. Cameron asked him about doing it 15, 20 years ago, and he's been thrown into this new story. But Tom Cruise is definitely – I got the head of NASA right here tweeting about it, and uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX and Tom Cruise are all going to make a movie aboard the space station. There you go, baby. Hmm. There you go. Uh, the other one is Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown uh, with Samuel L. Jackson is the pivot point. Uh, nice. See that nice. Happen. All right. Let's go on to – let's do a few more here. We can we can kind of rapid fire a little bit here. And, and by the way, you have a bridge there without a sight uh, uh, with Samuel L. Jackson because he shows up at the very end of that. That's and, true. And uh, you have two Elmore Leonard uh, adaptations going in there and everything, so – and right around the same, oh, I say, uh, Jackie Brown was 97 and uh, Out of Sight was 98, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. he, it would have to be in between because obviously uh, Sammy Sammy Jackson dies at the end of uh, Jackie Brown. He sure does. <gasps> Spoiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Here is, here's a fun one. Can you re- – <laughs> 
Can you recall the first movie where you would watch it just to see a brief glimpse of nudity? Mm, mm, uh, this mm. person's was Demolition Man, oddly enough. <laughs> well, where yeah. Sly yeah. made a video call to the wrong room where a woman oh, yeah. with exposed breasts <laughs> appeared for roughly two seconds at 12 years old. That was as good as it got. This is a kindred spirit back in the days where you could not pull up titties whenever you wanted to. True. Uh, online. <laughs> I will say that uh, there were the, the this happened mainly when I started working at movie theaters and I was 16. Um, so there was there's a sex scene at the beginning of the movie Rising Sun. Oh, on the table. Yeah. On the table, right? That uh, <laughs> that I would go <laughs> that I would go and uh, find a way to be on break for about three minutes so that I could watch <laughs> watch that here's, here's Chris's three minute break coming up. Yeah, yeah. Was well, Chris, hey guys, hey guys, I heard, heard there was a sound issue in this uh, Rising Sun. I need to go in there and make sure because you know. Um, and then uh, and then uh, Exit to Eden came a little bit later. Oh. Um, uh, but I, it was like, we, like me and another manager, like had it timed out <laughs> where like the movie would start and, and, you know, like, okay, hour in you go in and you, you see uh, Dana Delaney coming out of the pool and that's like, mm -hmm. all right, that's, that's what we're going to do. So yeah, those, those are the, those are the couple that I remember doing that with. Uh, this, you have to keep in mind that I did not have frequent or extended access to movies that had nudity. Mm -hmm. Um, so most of my early titillation as a young prepubescent boy was like uh, Olympic gymnastics and <laughs> Sears catalog, <laughs> JCPenney. Um, You're like Ben Stiller and there's something about Mary jerking off to the bra. Uh, sex uh, yeah. <laughs> but once I was old enough to have my own video rental card, and, you know, there were plenty of occasions when mom and dad would be out of town or uh, not at home for the evening. And so the, the real answer here is Terminator, mm -hmm. um, which has a very brief fleeting scene uh, of nudity. That, of Schwarzenegger uh, that, uh, when he comes back from, <laughs> from time. Yeah, it's the Schwarzenegger. exactly the scene I was thinking Schwarzenegger of. Schwarzenegger scene, okay. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. it. You got, I don't even need to talk anymore. <laughs> you got it. What's yours? Yeah, What's yours? What, what is the nudity Sarah, in Terminator? I forget. Sarah, Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese, man. When they, oh. do it, they have to do it because they have to make John yeah. and break the space-time continuum. Yeah. Do you think Kyle Reese knows he's making John in that moment? Ooh, he's like, look, here comes the Johnny batter. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> <laughs> wow you think john sent kyle reese back and said be sure you come inside her you know <laughs> don't pull out man that's my mom that's my mom you finishing her pussy god damn finishing my mom's pussy <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
<laughs> All right. Wow. America, I'm out of Kleenex. Oh, <laughs> Christ. <laughs> My, uh, my, my, uh, one of the first exposures to nudity that wasn't my own, uh, was Doc mm. Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Which was Good a, answer. one of mine had, had some boobs in it. Uh, Tommy Michael Boy. J. Fox, um, uh, goes to, uh, uh, like a, like a beach, <sighs> like a, like a lake beach and, mm-hmm. uh, sees who's the actress's name, uh, Chris. Tommy Boy. Yeah, if you hadn't said it, I would have known. Um, let me look it up real quick. I used to be able to roll this right off my tongue. And um, uh, she comes out of the water. and Julie uh, Warner. Julie Warner, of course. Uh, she comes out of the water uh, buck buck naked and uh, mm-hmm. walks up to uh, Michael J. Fox like it's no big deal. She's like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then she's like, hey, when she walks away, she's like, you can blink now. That's uh, the thing that gets me every time is the you can blink now. Oh. Like all the nudity is great, but the you can blink now is the best part of it. <laughs> uh, also, uh, had to admire Daryl Hannah's buttocks in Splash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an early one for me too. She was walking down the beach and showing her naked booty, and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and another thing that you you kids don't have to put up with these days. You you cannot imagine the adolescent algorithm that goes on in the brain of a teenager watching scrambled porn. Oh yeah, because they they sometimes don't scramble it all the way, folks. They sometimes scramble it a little bit, and you can see context clues. It becomes like a gestalt thing where you hear the pounding, and you're like, hmm. And then you're looking at the O's, and then you see like maybe a little hair, maybe an arm, and then boom, nipple, and then boom. Uh, usually it's softcore, so uh, you know you didn't see the whole thing. But later on, if you had a certain kind of cable, you could get the Playboy Channel, and you could get a little bit more stuff. And then sometimes they blur super hard, and then sometimes they blur a little bit, a little bit less. And, this is uh, how I watched Saturday Night Live when I was a kid because we didn't have very good reception. Wow, so that was very snowy. That was a weird thing, right? Like the channels that were scrambled, like still had a little bit, like they could just a little bit would show up. Yeah, like, like I, I don't know how that worked. Or yo, anything, I became but... an expert. It was like looking uh, 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 Joe Pantoliani looking at the the Matrix and be like, I don't even see numbers anymore. I see a blonde, <laughs> a brunette, a redhead. Right. That was me right. with scrambled porn. I could, oh, I like... could you look through the screen. Yeah, it would become yeah. a whole picture. It's like uh, uh, Elaine with that. 3D image, yeah, and Mr. Pitt not being able to. Oh, you my deep focus. <laughs> uh, what is your opinion on forced happy endings in movies? Now get your minds out of the gutter, people. Uh, mm. You know when you're absolutely positive the movie's going to end off tr- end up tragic, uh, but then at the last possible second something ridiculous happens and now everything's okay. I find these endings annoying because there's no reason to just switch it around at the last minute. God bless you, questioner, because I feel the exact same thing. Pick your pick your 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 lane and drive in it. What do you guys think? I've got 
I've got two robot movies here. Oh, Ooh. one of them is Terminator Two. The and this this I mean I guess this has to happen, but there's a point where the T one thousand drives a fucking metal rod all the way through the uh, Schwarzenegger, and and he is beat up all to fuck mm. like all the things that in his internal everything is damaged and then they finally shoot that thing through him and there's electricity and he's dead he's dead but oh let's wait for about 10 minutes or so and there's a backup power that should that comes on all of a sudden that could have come on you know three minutes earlier if it really wanted to yeah but uh, in this case, it was, you know, it's doing some sort of doot, doot, doot. You see the screen on there and there's like little dots and it's like, you know, it's like backup power restored and whatever. And he gets back up and he's just as strong as he was before, even though he was beat all the fuck. Yeah. And um, and uh, of course, he he finds a way to to, to win uh, by the end of that. Um, the Iron Giant also. Yeah. Has the, has this moment uh where he is he is blown up at the end he has made this wonderful sacrifice and that's where the movie i think i think possibly could have ended um uh we 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 are sad that uh, he can no longer be with us and that's that's life but at the very end even though it's very touching and it'll it'll make you make your hair stand on end and everything the pieces of iron giant somehow are all across the world calling back to each other even though he's been blown up to fuck i mean what is he made of, out of legos that don't burn <laughs> what is the deal like there's got to be burned and charred and like unrecoverable things from that blast yeah. but in this one they're making it seem like oh no no he was just blown to a bunch of pieces that they can all call each other later by the end because we don't want to get we don't want the kids to get too distressed at the end <laughs> we want to make sure that he that he's going to be alive by the end mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i uh interpreted this question two different ways um uh because i think it's a complex question uh, because there were forced happy endings um and then there are movies that you thought were going to end tragically but, but then at the last minute something turns it around it's not always happy so i've got an example for both so the forced happy endings uh, i already talked about before um the happiest season the Kristen stewart oh yeah um, mm -hmm. um um mackenzie davis uh romance where in roughly 24 hours uh, mackenzie davis goes from adamantly not coming out to coming out and her parents, who have been presented all along as not accepting, are immediately loving and accepting. And uh, there's actually this whole movement of fans of this movie who think Kristen Stewart should have ended up with Aubrey Plaza's character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you could make a case for that. It's certainly an unneeded happy ending uh, for a movie. I guess romantic comedies, by definition, feel like they have to have a happy ending, even though they shouldn't. Uh, but then I also wanted to bring up, I've been trying to talk about this movie for a long for about two weeks since I saw it again, a uh, one hour photo with uh, Robin Williams. Oh yeah. Which is a movie that should have a violent ending <clears throat> because he goes from a guy who's kind of just enamored with this family, uh, Michael Bartan and uh, is it Connie Nielsen? I think it's Connie Nielsen. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's Connie Nielsen. Anyway, um, right. he's the photo guy, Cy the photo guy. He makes their photos at a Walmart-like store. And 
he he slowly over days or weeks becomes obsessed with them um and then like he fantasizes about sneaking into their house uh he goes to the kid's soccer game when the parents aren't there and gives the kid a toy it's creepy shit uh but then in going through photos that he's developing uh for another person he finds out the husband is having an affair with this woman and it mm. makes him angry that this husband would throw away this perfect family so he follows them stalks them to the hotel is fairly clever in figuring out what room they're in and goes up there uh basically he cancels a room service order that they ordered and then takes up fake room service himself and goes into the hotel room they're screwing in with a knife and they're naked and he starts making them pose and listen i I'm talking about a movie, not real life. But this movie needs to have a violent ending. Mm. Instead, it cuts away, and nobody really got hurt, and now he's going to jail, uh, and he was just a troubled man. And the mm. end. Mm. Nobody nobody gets stabbed multiple times. Uh, nothing like that. And the whole movie has been leading up to something much more visceral. And it's, it completely pulls its punch. Uh, I have a feeling... Someone on the Robin Williams PR team didn't want him doing a slash murder at the end of this movie, yeah. even though if they had that feeling, they should have never let him take the role. Um, right. <laughs> everything about the role is, is nearly that bad. Um, yeah, I think it was the anyway. same year he did insomnia as well. And it yeah. may have been uh, maybe just a little bit too much for him to be uh, that those two kind of characters in the same, the same year or something, maybe. you know, who knows? That's crazy because uh, I've only seen that once. I remembered enjoying it, but I would have told you that he did kill them at the end. Yeah, uh, I completely forgot that end. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasant enough watch. I mean, he's engaging yeah. um, and carries the film, but it just it somebody somewhere read a screening review comment card and completely changed what the ending should have been. So, well, and I think, and I should know this because we've talked about it enough, but. I think maybe the same thing would have happened with uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out um, because I think he filmed an alternate ending. Mm -hmm. um, what, you, what, you see, uh, yeah, what you see at the end of that movie, which I saw originally in the theater and I was expecting, is that Daniel Kaluuya's character has now wiped the entire family, the evil family, off the earth, including burning down the house inadvertently. Um, so he really doesn't have any evidence, especially since Allison Williams's character is right down the road, all shot up. And so you see the police car coming up and I guess, I don't know if everybody felt this way, but you're conditioned at this point, or I was to think shit, the or well, you're conditioned to say, Oh, the cops are here. And then, Oh shit, the cops are here. Mm -hmm. And then you, then you're like, well, this isn't going to end well for him, given the entire ethos of the movie. But the the theatrical cut uh, ends with uh, Lil Rel Howery coming out and uh, from his TSA position and and saying, you know, I, I'm rescuing you. And, and it's not a bad ending. It's not a bad ending at all. But I think movie-wise, whether it was Jordan Peele's intention or not, I think movie-wise it pulled its punch at the end of that. Have, yeah. I, have I discussed the uh, alternate ending to get out on the I front? think you have, yeah, because where, where it is. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the the Blu-ray, right? Yeah, it's on the Blu-ray. It's uh, it's great. It's uh, it's it, if it had ended that way, it would have been would have been great as well. I think it's a better and more honest ending. Uh, yeah. But but Jordan Peele uh, wanted to change it because he felt like with Donald Trump going into office, he uh, I felt see. like he, the the character needed a win at the end of it. So, well, I understand um, that, and I'm I'm happy to see that character uh survive at the end but mm-hmm. yeah within the movie's logic that would be just a a brilliant ending to cap off how honest that movie is and the other one is motherfucking beauty and the motherfucking beast mm. uh because which is the total the the official title of this movie mm-hmm. uh ends ends in such a bullshit manner man okay so Belle goes back to the castle and Beast is all depressed and she runs back to say to 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 warn him that the gang, the mob is coming. But then Gaston uh stabs him and motherfucker dies, right? And at this point, Belle's going back just to warn him, not to tell him that she loves him, right? But uh but she gets there and homeboy dies, pedal falls off. Last petal of the rose falls off, hits the ground. Spell is irreversible at this point. Mm-hmm. Irreversible. But she says, I love you. And all of a sudden he's swept up and then turned into the prince. And it's such bullshit, man. Because, yeah, she felt like that she hadn't felt before in the middle of the movie and everything. But he's still fucking beast. She doesn't know she's, he's a prince. She's going to warn him. Like, at best, they're friends. They're friends. Okay? and And at worst... Pedal fell off the rose. Curse is irreversible. He stays a beast. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense, and I hate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what it was, but when Jeremy was describing what he thought this question uh, meant, I thought of Rushmore because well, Rushmore has that has a just a somewhat out of nowhere happy ending as well. Yeah. Uh, because considering what Jason Schwartzman's been doing the whole movie, and he never learns any lessons suddenly he learns the lesson so that the movie can have the happy ending by the end of it. And like, he's okay with, you know, Olivia Williams going out with Bill Murray again. And he's uh, sort of like, uh, all right, I really do have a a girlfriend, my age, someone who likes me. Uh, I'll go out with her. That's probably best for me. Uh, He seems to uh, uh, be okay with what his dad does because he's been saying he's a, he's like a, a brain surgeon the whole movie but then he's like oh he's a barber by the end of it like all the things that he was hang having a hang up about he decides eh fuck it third act we're not gonna worry about that <laughs> yep <clears throat> uh all right uh that's gonna do it for this episode uh once again would love to uh, like to uh uh thank richard kelly for uh being on the this episode that uh, the interview was uh, was great i uh really enjoyed talking to him Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you want to, uh, comment on this episode, go to, uh, uh, Sincast presented by cinema sins on Facebook. We're also on cinema sins, Twitter, music video sins, twi- Twitter. Uh, we're on, uh, SoundCloud and discord. If you want to get on discord, you can go to our Reddit page and find a link on the right side there, or you can go to Facebook and private message me and I can give you a link there. But that's going to do it uh, for this episode. It's Chris Atkins and Jeremy Scott and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, 
and rent. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. Okay. It's like every single every day now. It seems like <laughs> you're like, why is this blurry? Why is Jesus blurry? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not aware of too many things. I know what I'm oh, know. Edie Brickell and the New Radicals. Do yeah, yeah. New Edie Brickell and the um, New Bohemians. New Bohemians. New Bohemians. I was thinking about the New Radicals doing their. Says, uh, you gotta get what you get. Is a walk on slippery rocks religion, and then later, by the way, dog on cereal box religion. I love that uh, that song, by the way. Uh, and she was married, or at least dating, Paul Simon for a long time. Edie for Brickell. sure, I think they married for a bit. Uh, so new radicals with the "You Get What You Give," mm-hmm. uh, a song that I loathe with every amount of sperm mm-hmm. in my sack. You're wrong. Is is uh, they're reuniting for the Biden inauguration mm-hmm. yep. because they said now is the time to bring the new radicals back mm-hmm. into the fold. Are they still and, going with the new in front of their? Like, yeah, I mean they're, they're they're old. Well, wasn't he bald? He was bald back in those days, but I think he shaved his head. He's probably just you're bald. bald. <laughs> you're <laughs> bald. <laughs> Not, I was bald. <laughs> so you guys like that song? You, you like the, uh, don't I love give that up? song. I like it. Oh, I have it on my phone. I love it so much. You got oh, the God. dreamer in you. Oh, God. Don't let go. I can't. I, I actually don't understand why you don't like this song. This seems like a Barrett song. I think there's like one lyric he hates, right? Well, I... Yeah, the stupid Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson lyric is is stupid. Beck and Hanson. The whole, yeah, Beck and Hanson. Yeah, and not Beck Hanson, Beck and Hanson. Uh, I have a feeling he, he wrote that lyric, like, he got halfway through it, and he was like, you know what, let's just throw the actual group Hanson in here instead of, <laughs> instead of Beck. Mm-hmm. No, I've always said the guy seemed like a smarmy motherfucker, and he just, mm. it just, it, it, uh... It's it's uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. Yikes. <laughs> it was, was on, obviously, and I was like sitting there like I didn't hear anything that was being said during it or anything. I was just seeing that he was up there, but it was just funny that George W. Bush afterwards was like, that was some weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part is the random thing where The Rock is talking to Sean William Scott, and he's like, so we're fucking last night, right? He's talking about yeah. Sarah Miguel. And he's like, we're fucking. And just as I'm about to come, I puke on her tits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody rocks like, a cock it like happens. that now. <laughs> There's some like, the line readings in this are so great. Like, uh, everybody get to the butt, to the rear of the Megazapple. <laughs> Jeremy, did you ever see Under the Silver Lake? No, but I saw it here in Vice. And if if those are similar, then I made a good choice. I'm the only one in the universe that likes it. Well, Chris, no, you don't even like it. I know. I remember the Maltons um, really didn't like it. Nobody likes that movie. It's It's a free movie on Amazon, though, right? 
Inherent Vice? No. Under the Silver oh, Lake. Is, is that the movie you're talking about, is Inherent Vice? I thought you were talking about Under the Silver Lake. No, I went back to Under the Silver Lake. The Moltons didn't like that. Uh, yes, Under the Silver Lake is available on Amazon. In fact, it was an Amazon uh, production, I believe. The only reason I haven't watched it yet is that every time I'm like, oh, that would be cool to watch, It's I, <laughs> I go and, and uh, check it out. I was like, you know, go find it, and it's like two and a half fucking hours or something. And I'm yeah, like, it uh, is. <laughs> uh, that email gave me a boner. <laughs> I've got a boner. I just want you to know at some point today, I'm going to tell you how wrong you are about we bought a zoo. Um, but mm-hmm. that'll, that'll Dude. wait. Dude, that movie's a little delightful. It's not, it's, it's not without, it's not without charm. It's not without charm, but, uh, no, it, it's not great. Obviously it loses points for having the hottest woman in the world. be the main, <laughs> mm-hmm. she's got a crush on Matt Damon and wants to kiss him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's adorable though. Well, I just don't it's take such that a thinking. weird movie. Freaky is maybe my favorite movie of the last uh, year. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. I mean, it, it's absurdly violent. It's so but, fun. But Christopher Landon of you know Happy Death Day did it, so it's it's got yeah. that kind of fun to it. But Nomadland is great. I just I'm I was sitting there watching it, going, yeah, this is good. And it's probably even better than I'm giving it credit for. I, I, I mean, it, but it's just, man, I just, I just didn't want to see anything like that. I that felt the exact same way, man. Mm-hmm. And mm. it was it's, like, it's great. oh, yeah, it's, it's great. Like, oh, this is so good. But like at the same time, I was like, this just, <laughs> this is not. I bet uh, my itch, man. I bet Jeremy would love it because of the scenery, though. Yeah. Because. Uh, it's in the Badlands and all that stuff. I'm really into slow ass movies. The older I get, I don't know why. <clears throat> well, this is and perfect for you then. <laughs> put on something like I'm just gonna leave this right here, and I'm like, okay, now we know that this isn't. This is going to be intellectually dishonest. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, obviously, The Rock wasn't who The Rock is now. Sarah Michelle Geller was was still kind of riding high. That's, Sarah Michelle Geller is fucking hilarious. It South is Line. so good. That oh, teen horniness so is not a crime thing. I could have talked to him for an hour <laughs> about that song. Teen horniness is not a crime, and they have this. They have like it actually plays the song for a bit, <laughs> and you can hear some of the lyrics, and they are fucked up. And um, and uh. And then, like, uh, but yeah, there, there's a point where they're they're uh, that Nora Dunn is trying to uh, um, blackmail uh, the senator, and Holmes Osborne plays plays the senator in that. And uh, he's looking at the CD, and he's like, "Teen horniness is not a crime." I never said it wasn't. Hell, <laughs> <laughs> Jim Cunningham thing. I, I love the whole thing where like. Maggie Gyllenhaal is watching the the screen, watching the news, and they're like, and they found a kitty porn dungeon in his basement or whatever. And she goes, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> and there, and then there's that like the next scene, like you know that. And it's, and Beth Grant is like sitting there like doing this because the star, sparkle motion is going to star search. And then they, and then somebody shows her the newspaper with Jim Cunningham's been busted yeah. on it and everything. And she's like, Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. 
I'm starting to doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. <laughs> I made Samantha lead dancer. <laughs> <laughs>